Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Oscar Sagastume. And again, I get another restraining order on her. And honestly, I don't really hear from her, you know? Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is JoJo Effect behind me now. And this is the best of Risk, number 17. Uh, You know, every six months, we do one of these little sampler episodes, like a a compilation of some of our very favorite stories from the show recently. It's so hard to put these goddamn things together because it's so hard to choose. You know, what we try to do is put together a few funny stories, a a couple scary stories, a couple beautiful stories. And I think that these serve really especially well as episodes to share with people who are brand new to the show. To say, hey, check this out and see if you like the way this episode sounded. And then you might want to listen to some of their ordinary ones that they come out with every week. Now, so many people said, oh, you've got to include Melanie Hamlet's story, One of the Boys, in this compilation. 
but I think people might forget that story was over an hour long. So it doesn't really fit so well time-wise into a compilation like this. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a remarkable story that Tracy Starin first shared at a Risk Live show in New York City. Before that, we're going to hear a story that Oscar Sagastume shared in Los Angeles. But before both of them, we're going to hear a story that Ryan Heller shared with us when Risk was in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, several months back. This is a crazy one. <laughs> Here he is right now, Ryan Heller at the Risk Live Show in Fort Lauderdale with a story we call Season of the Witch. So it is 2010, I'm 26 years old, and I completely black out in a Marshall's dressing room. So I had heard that if you take a fentanyl pain patch and rip it open, you can eat the like jelly contents that's inside of it and get really fucked up. So I thought that this was an awesome idea. Earlier that day, I went to my dealer's house and I call this man my dealer, but he was actually this really cute little old man that I had met after posting an ad in the male-for-male casual encounter section of Craigslist looking for drugs, because that's where I was at that point in my life. So I go to his house, and I buy this fentanyl pain patch. I put it on, and then I decide that it's time to go to Marshall's and go shopping, because why not? I'm in the dressing room at Marshall's, and I figure this is the perfect time to test this theory. So I take off the pain patch, and I start trying to rip open the patch, and they do not make this very conducive to opening. So I'm like teeth into it, I'm pulling it, and I'm prying it, and finally I take like a a safety pin that was on one of the hang tags, and I start picking at the foil packaging to try to get some kind of leeway. So I start now peeling back the foil, and the next thing I know, I am face first in this pain patch, licking it clean. And the last thing I remember is that taste of the chemical going down the back of my throat. And that's it. Blackout. I woke up two days later in my bed with absolutely no idea what had transpired in that time. So I start trying to piece together fragments of my life like a bad dream. And finally, I I look at my phone and I see all of these missed text messages from an unknown number. So I look at the messages and it's from a woman who tells me that she comes from a long line of gypsies. And she and I had met in the shoe department of Marshall's and apparently we really bonded over a pair of red Nikes which were now sitting in my closet. So she says that when we were together, she could sense a curse inside of me, and she could help me with this curse if I wanted. 
Now, I've always loved magic. I've been surrounded by the mystical my whole life, whether tarot card readers or psychics or mediums. So for this woman to tell me that she's a gypsy and I have a curse that she can help me with, I mean, this was like striking gold. And to be perfectly honest, at that point in my life, I felt cursed because I was in the midst of a 14-year drug addiction. I was unbelievably lonely, depressed, and I had just come out of a three-year extremely toxic relationship where me and this guy, when we met, the thing that bonded us was the fact that we had both just been arrested for a DUI and were serving probation. So when I have a woman telling me that she's a gypsy and can cure me of my shit, well, I was at her house in a day. So this house that this woman lived in, it was like a two-story, huge waterfront home on Fort Lauderdale Beach. And for me, coming from, I was living in like a shitty two-bedroom duplex with three roommates. This home It was like the epitome of success. It was everything that I wanted. So she was clearly doing something right. She could help me. So the door opens, and there's a blonde woman standing there. And she tells me that she is the sister of the gypsy who I had met. She, too, is a gypsy, and she sees the curse inside of me as well, and she'd be able to help So she invites me to come in the house. I walk in, and she proceeds to sit me at, like, this round breakfast table in the dining room. And I sit, and she plops this, like, Bible-thick, like, all I can say, it's like the equivalent of, like, a gypsy home shopping network catalog in front of me. And she says, okay, you need to pick one thing from this catalog, and this is the object that will help cure you of your curse. So I'm leafing through, and it's got all the stuff that you would expect to be in this catalog, like talismans and crystals and candles, all the stuff that I have in my house today, by the way. And I see, I see this really beautiful, ornate, carved candle, and I say, that's it. This is the object. And she says, oh, that is the perfect object for you. It's $300. And I'm like, oh, wait, I, so I was working a really crappy graphic design job for like a gay trash magazine making like minimum wage. So in no way could I possibly afford a $300 candle. And so I'm asking her, what's another option? And she says, you have one other way. We could perform a ritual. And the best part about this ritual is it's free. So I'm like, sign me up. You tell me what to do, and I will do it. So she gives me this list of instructions, and she says, one, you need to go to the bank and empty all the money out of your bank account. (laughs) Two, you have to go home, find a glass jar, and then wrap all your money around this jar. And then fill the jar with water, put an egg inside the jar, 
and then take your favorite article of clothing and sheath it around this jar with the money and put it under your bed for one week and then come back. So I'm out of there. I go straight to the bank. I take out all the money from my bank account, which was like 630 something dollars. That's all the money I had to my name then. I go immediately home. I find the perfect mason jar. I fill it with water. I wrap the money around the jar. I put the egg inside and I take my favorite t-shirt. And this was, this was truly my favorite t-shirt because I got it when I was thrift store shopping in high school. And it said the spike across from it. And I could never understand why old creepy men would ask me what a cute thing like me was doing wearing a shirt like that until I found out that the spike was this like gay S&M club in New York in the 80s. So it was like my favorite shirt. (laughs) So I, I wrap it, I sheath it around the jar and I place it under my bed for one week. And then a week goes by and I take the jar to the house and I knock on the door. And this time the door slowly opens and there is a different woman standing there. And it's this older, very stoic, kind of stern-looking woman with dyed dark hair And she says, hello. She has this like gypsy accent like this. Hello. I am the mother. I am the high gypsy priestess. And only I can cure you of your curse. Come in. And I'm like, okay. I've got the high gypsy priestess. I'm set. So I go in and she walks me through the kitchen and the dining room and into the laundry room, which I say laundry room, but it's like the size of my bedroom at that time. It was huge. And there's two stools. She sits on one stool and I sit on the other and she hands me a blindfold and she takes the jar from me and she begins to explain You have a very dark curse in you. There's a demon inside of you that has been following you from lifetime to lifetime. And it will continue to follow you into the next lifetime unless we cure you of this curse today. And I'm like, oh my God. Whatever you tell me to do, I will do. Just get rid of the demon. So she tells me to put on the blindfold, and I put on the blindfold. And suddenly it gets really quiet. And then I hear her start talking in these languages that I had never heard before, like, and then she starts like patting my legs a little bit, you know, like patting me down. And then she begins to go a little bit like crazier with it, like, and the padding gets like a little bit stronger. And she starts like hitting my chest and beating me. And then she's like, and I am like, by this point, vibrating. My body feels alive and I am hot and I am sweating. And I don't know if I'm excited or scared. And then she starts like hitting my face and it gets absolutely insane. And the next thing I know, then she's spitting at me. She's like, and I'm like covered in gypsy spit. And it's this amazing, crazy crescendo. And then it gets quiet. 
And she tells me to take off the blindfold. So I take off the blindfold. And she's holding up the jar. And in the jar is like this yellowish red bloody color with like a fleshy, fatty thing floating inside of it that kind of looked like chicken breast with like a bone and uh, like a wad of hair, like something you would pull out of your shower drain. And I'm like, what is that? And she says, it is the demon. I pulled it from out of you and I trap him in the jar. And the only way to keep the demon in the jar is to keep the money and the jar here with me for one week. And then you come back and I give it to you. And I'm like, wait a minute, whoa. Suddenly something feels a little off. (laughs) You know, like all of a sudden it feels a little strange to me. And I'm like, you want me to leave all of my money with you She says, yes. And I'm looking at the demon, and I'm like, I don't know. It doesn't really look like a demon to me, and kind of looks like chicken breast. And and I could swear that I saw a pack of open supermarket chicken breast sitting on the washing machine, and this really pisses her off. And she goes, get out! And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. (sighs) Okay. Because at this point, this was everything to me. You know, like this was my chance to change my life. So I agree to leave her the jar with my money, my favorite t-shirt. And I leave with the intention to come back in one week. And a week goes by. And I show up very eager to her house, and I knock on the door, and there's no answer. So I knock on the door again, and there's no answer. So I peek through the window, and that house has been vacated. It was empty. There was no one there. There was not even a stitch of furniture. They had either moved or the gypsy gods had come and plucked them off the face of the earth. But I felt like the biggest asshole. I mean, more than that, any chance, any hope that I had that my life was going to change was gone. I mean, my heart dropped. I had nothing. I was broke. And I went home. Eight years go by, and I am telling this story to a friend, and we're laughing about it because it's ridiculous. I mean, it, it, is, it is ridiculous that I agreed to do any of that. It's ridiculous that I literally gave these people my money, right? And then all of a sudden, like, <laughs> this light bulb goes off in my head, and I say to my friend, You know, it's really weird. I ended up applying for a job like three months after my exorcism. (laughs) And I got that job, and it's still, eight years later, my career today. I'm still with that job. And then these little 
flashes go off in my head like constellations that begin to connect. And I say to my friend, God, it's really funny. The guy who interviewed me for that job turned out to be my future husband, who we've been together for eight years. We've been married for three. We have two adorable twin, yeah, yeah. We have two adorable, beautiful twin babies. And then exactly one year after my exorcism, I went to rehab and got sober and have been sober ever since. So yeah, but now I cannot help but wonder if that crazy gypsy mama actually pulled like a chicken breast demon from out of me. Thank you. not always the handsome debonair ladies man that you see before you uh, but in high school I was very awkward I was into comic books and musicals and the latter made everyone think that I was gay and this was the late 90s so uh, comic books musicals and being gay were not cool um, so when a lady a lady was starting to pay attention to me it was interesting. Uh, she was tall and beautiful. She had a dancer's body. She had these really dark eyes. And she had this like, <laughs> favorite part about her was this like wavy hair, right? And then she hated to deal with it. She used to keep it up in the bun. And whenever I saw her, I would say, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair. <laughs> she put down her hair. She hated that. Um, but we started dating, right? Surprise to everyone. Um <laughs> And as the days turned to weeks and the weeks turned to months, I started thinking about how beautiful she was and how she was going to leave me. I got so scared of it ending, right? Our song, or like our song, because we were teenagers, our song was Always and Forever by Luther Vandross. And I was worried that our relationship was going to be brief and fleeting. So I broke up with her. I was going to break up with her, but I didn't know, I couldn't tell her how I felt because that's not what you did when you were kids, right? So I decided to lie to her and tell her that I was seeing somebody else. Uh, And so I did. I told her I was seeing somebody else and I had my best friend back me up on it. She did not take it well. She went over to my best friend's house and he told her that I was seeing someone else and so she slept with him to get back at me and then slept with another friend of mine. 
Um, so <laughs> I, uh, I found out about it and then I bumped into her and she walked up toward me like very like um, uh, brash, you know, like she had won something. Like it wasn't a game. And she came up and she was like, oh, you know, I slept with your friends and I got back at you and, you know, and, you know, I won and whatever. And I was so upset. I didn't know what to say to her except the truth which I had lied to her that there was no one else. And I was like, there was no one else. I cared about you. I was just scared you were going to leave me. And I remember looking into her eyes and all of that sort of anger and sort of righteousness that she had about getting back at me just melted away. And she just started bawling. And I started crying and we just, you know, went away from each other. And so when she started calling me incessantly to apologize and leaving me messages and paging me, it was the late 90s, by the way, and paging me to call her back and tell me how much she loved me and all this other stuff, and she was wrong. I just ignored her because I didn't know what to say. Like, what are you supposed to say? Like, I'm sorry, I lied to you, and it's okay that you slept with two of my friends to get back at me? I... And so my dad had to block her number, and again, the 90s, not an easy task. <laughs> and, you know, I, you know, I just, I was hoping that she'd forget about me. One day I came home with my father, because I was living with my parents at the time, because I was 17 years old. Um, we came home, and the door to our condo was slightly ajar. And we lived in a shitty neighborhood, so we never did that on purpose. <laughs> and as we're walking toward the front door, I can hear music. And the song, as I open the door, is Always and Forever. And I look down, and I notice that there are rose petals leading to my room. And my father taps me on the shoulder and says, be careful, mijo, and then pushes me in. (laughs) So now I'm in front of my father, and I'm walking toward my room to where this love song is playing, and I'm following these rose petals, and I get to my door, and I open the door. And there are candles everywhere, or rose petals everywhere. And there is Rapunzel laying on my bed, naked. And she says, I'm ready for you. I, I don't know what to say, because, mostly because my father's there. And then my dad starts laughing. And Rapunzel opens her eyes, turns around. And picks up her clothes, puts it on, starts, and runs out the door. And as she's getting out the front door, my dad realizes she, he should probably call the cops. I'm horrified. I'm scared. Like, this is, this is like a very big intrusion. She literally broke into my house and was in my room. And my dad is trying not to laugh. And he hangs up the phone. And I go, Dad, why, why are you laughing? And he's like, Mijo, I thought you were gay. <laughs> um. And I'm going to be honest with you. Like, it, yeah, it, the, the intrusion was terrifying. She broke into my house. I mean, obviously, there's a lot going on there. But I was flattered, which was not an emotion I thought I would have. <laughs> but I thought, like, someone that beautiful and that in love with me broke into my house <laughs> and gave herself to me. That was nice. I mean, it was nice. <laughs> I mean, my dad called the cops, and she got arrested, and she got sent to a place, and she was seeing a therapist, and there was a really good restraining order on her. Um, and, you know, I probably should have started seeing therapists then, but I didn't. And a few weeks go by, and I was invited to a party, and I decided to go to this party. And I don't know, and even though I don't know anybody there, 
And so I get there and I'm like wandering around and like, you know, nervous. I'm a teenager and I start drinking wine coolers because it's the 90s (laughs) and I'm getting pretty drunk and I walk into the kitchen. When I walk into the kitchen, there's this tall dancer's body, dark curly hair girl in the kitchen. And I I don't know what to, I I don't know if it's hers. I start walking toward her because I've been drinking. You know, Barles and James gives you courage. And... (laughs) I get up to her and she turns around and it's Rapunzel. And I'm close enough that she reaches out and grabs my arms. But she starts apologizing immediately. I'm sorry I broke into your house. (laughs) I'm sorry I was naked when you're dead. I'm on medication. And she's just telling me how much she loves me and sorry about sleeping with your friends. And I'm sort of like super nervous, but she's also holding me really close. And she smells good, like rose petals. And... um, She's very beautiful, you know, and also mentioned I was a teenage boy. So when she leaned in to kiss me, I went with it. And we started making out in the kitchen. And as things are going on, there's a little voice of reason in the back of my head that says, this is probably not a great idea. And so I kind of pull away, or I pull away, and I I tell her we should slow down. Mind you, I said, slow down, not stop. (laughs) I say, we should slow down because, you know, last time I saw you, the cops got involved thinking she was going to laugh. She didn't laugh. She started trashing the kitchen. Started grabbing anything that wasn't nailed down and throwing it at me. And everyone in the party, like in the kitchen, because it's a big kitchen, there's people in there going, hey, hey, calm down, because there's a lot of underage drinking going on, and they don't want trouble. But pretty soon, she starts like really breaking things, and so someone yells out, call the cops. And that's about the time that she found the knives. She reached over and she grabbed the kitchen knife, put both hands on it, and lunged at me. And I remember, like, grabbing her arms and looking at her and just rage-filled eyes. And I remember feeling, like, a pressure here and, like, a weird tingling, burning sensation. But, but I'm thinking, oh, I stopped her and maybe the knife was dull. And then somebody screams, like a woman, I'm assuming, screams... <laughs> And then people grab her, and then I realize that my shirt is wet, and then I look down, and there's blood all over the front of my shirt, and I look up, because I'm, I'm worried I hurt her. Like, that was my first thought, was I hurt her. But it wasn't her blood, obviously, it was my blood. I was bleeding profusely from the stabbing wounds I just received. <laughs> so again, the police come. <laughs> and again, she gets arrested. And again, I get another restraining order on her. And honestly, I don't really hear from her, you know? (laughs) So, years pass. And now I'm living in Las Vegas. I've been there for a few years. And I decide I'm going to move back to Los Angeles. And over the years, I have been very careful about my online information, right? I always kept it protected, mostly because of her. And... But I decided to post something publicly on Facebook that I'm moving back to Los Angeles and blah, blah, blah. Almost immediately, she friends me on all the social media accounts I've ever had, including Friendster. Kind of associate, it doesn't matter. I block everything and I'm sort of freaking out again. But this time I can afford a therapist, so I call one. And I moved back to Los Angeles where I start doing stand-up comedy. And one of the sort of rites of passage as a stand-up is you do these things called a bringer show. And a bringer shows, they 
track how many people show up and give you the amount of time. So if 10 people show up, you get 10 minutes. It's terrible. Um, but they write down everybody that comes in, and you always know how many of your friends are going to be there. And I start doing these shows, and every once in a while, there's an extra person I didn't count on. And when I ask the door guy, they just describe tall, curly hair. I don't know. And then one morning, it's early. And I'm going to work. The sun's just rising. It's one of those really brisk LA days, right? This, this, like, like I just want to get to my car and have a cigarette. That's all I want to do, right? Because I don't want my wife to find out I'm smoking. And I go to my car, and it's, I live in a really empty street right at the time. And like, you know, I know everybody that's on that street. And I get to my car, and I realize my car door is unlocked. And I open my car door. And someone has emptied everything that was in my car, the glove compartment, my backpack with, my, with all my work stuff, and it's completely trash. And I'm like, fuck, someone stole, like, someone stole from me. I've been robbed. But then I realize I see my wallet in there and my laptop. And then I do a quick inventory, and the only thing that's missing is dirty dry cleaning shirts that I forgot to take, like a bag full of them. And that's when I hear a car start behind me. And I turn around. And I can see the driver smiling, and it's Rapunzel. Just smiling, staring at me, and all the blood rushes out of my body. And I have to grab the door, because I think I'm going to fall over. And she just sits there staring at me, and then drives away. I have a lot more than one cigarette. Uh, <laughs> but I get in my car and go to work, because I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, am I supposed to call the cops? Am I supposed to tell my wife? I don't. Either one of those. But I'm, I'm terrified. Like, I'm not sure what's going to happen next. And uh, a few days go by. I come home from a comedy show. And it's late at night. And I come home. I park my car. And my head's on a swivel, right? Because I'm always, I'm like nervous. Now. Everywhere I go, I'm just keeping an eye on where I can be, you know, or where anything, any sort of danger can happen. And I'm walking out up to the front door of my house, and the porch light is on, and uh, there's a box in front of my door. It's like a shoebox. And as I'm getting closer, I can see it's decorated. Hearts, stars, some, like a child did it, you know? All these the pretty little things, and there's words on it, but I can't make it out. And uh, I kind of like stop, and I start thinking about what I should do. I don't hear anything, and... And I walk closer, and I, I pick up the box that's the front door of my house. That's it's just the door, and then my family. And uh, I bend over, and I, I pick up the box. It's not that heavy. It's not, it's not the weight of a dead animal or anything. And I can see the words that I saw from far away are uh, the lyrics to Always and Forever. Oh. And I, uh, I open the box. And inside the box is hair. Long, wavy, curly hair. And then I wait for the uh, flash of a gun or a knife coming in from behind, and there's nothing. The sounds of the street and my kids playing uh, in the house waiting for me to come home. And I stand out there for a few minutes, and I'm shaking. And then, all of a sudden, a sense of peace comes over me. I don't know how to explain it. Like, 
There was no, there's no way to explain it other than it was a sense of peace. And I knew that what she meant by this box of human hair that she left at my front door was that she was saying goodbye and that she was done. And I've never had a problem with her since. Thank you. What's the worst that could have fun when you're taking the risk? Your whole life you've been searching, but you're too afraid of all of it. And I'm caught up in a return. No idea how you get here. Trying to keep my head up of what? Is, is it a sink when you think? I said yes and it was all happening we were celebrating with friends we were registering for towels we were gathering the money that we'd saved for years to buy an apartment we were planning our honeymoon two weeks in the pacific northwest we hadn't had much of a chance to travel together because we were always working and going to school and saving money and this was going to be the first of many trips we were planning I was sending out resumes because it was time for me to take the next step in my career. We had a great life. And we had great friends who were a huge part of our lives. I was that friend that everybody called when something was going on. Will you come with me to pick out furniture? Will you read my manuscript and let me know what you think? Will you help me write my resume? We all had so many plans and nothing seemed out of reach. One day, on our way home from going to a wedding venue, I started to notice small differences in my vision. It was just a a dark spot, a small spot in the very corner of my eye. It was so small that I wasn't sure it was there. And I dismissed it. But then it grew. And I decided in the middle of the planning and the being and the having and the doing that I needed to go to an eye doctor. He took one look at my eye and he knew what it was instantly. I got my marriage license and my diagnosis on the same day. I had a neurological disorder where my head filled up with spinal fluid and it caused my optic nerves to swell. So they sent me to the hospital for treatment. I exchanged my two weeks in the Pacific Northwest for two weeks at New York Presbyterian Hospital in beautiful Washington Heights. (laughs) Though by the time my ordeal was over, it would be six weeks in the hospital, seven spinal taps, and two brain surgeries later. When I came home, everything was different. Part of my vision was gone. I had surgical wounds 
that were still healing, including a hole in my skull and a scalp full of staples. I had to leave my job. I couldn't go out of the house by myself. I couldn't take a shower if I was home alone because I was a falling hazard. I couldn't bend over to tie my shoes. I had been an avid reader my whole life, and now I couldn't see well enough to read books. I couldn't put a key in a lock. Simple tasks that I had done every day of my life without thinking about were now insurmountable to me. I would stab and stab and stab at a lock with the key and not be able to find the keyhole. And out of frustration and embarrassment, burst into tears until somebody came to help me. I needed help with everything, every day. One day, my husband dropped me off in front of my mother's house, and I couldn't find my way to the front door. I just stood on the curb, lost, not knowing which direction to walk in, until my husband jumped out of the car and walked me inside. And every time something like that happened, it hit us in the face how different our lives were now. My friends didn't know what to say to me. Suddenly, I wasn't as useful as I was before. Most of them said nothing. My phone stopped ringing. I stopped hearing from them. During this time, I spent a lot of time at home alone, feeling lost, feeling frustrated, feeling helpless. I spent a lot of time daydreaming and watching old movies. And one of the movies that I watched all the time was that old Superman movie with Christopher Reeve, the original one. That was actually the first movie I ever saw in a movie theater as a child, because I'm old. And <laughs> it started a lifelong love of Cape Crusaders. And I started to wonder, am I in the middle of my own origin story? Superheroes' powers are revealed to them during times of extreme adversity. And I thought, is that what's happening to me? Is that why this happened? Am I going to find out what my strengths are? I can't see. Maybe my senses of hearing and my sense of smell will get sharper. But no superpowers were becoming apparent. I certainly didn't have super speed. Everything in my life slowed down. And I couldn't walk through walls. I couldn't even stop myself from walking into them. It would be over a year of recovery before I would find any kind of normalcy. But with a lot of effort, my husband and I found a new normal. With my hands out in front of me, I learned my way to feel my way through the world. I felt my way across walls. With my hands on the banister, I felt my way up and down the stairs. I even was able to feel a key into the lock. The first time I did that was a personal victory. I arranged my apartment so that I knew where everything was all the time. And I learned how to do the little tasks. I learned how to adjust. I started listening to audiobooks. I learned how to need and accept help, like having somebody read me a menu in a restaurant. And we coasted along in this new version of my life for quite some time. We started going to plays and movies and concerts again. 
five years, almost to the week of my first hospitalization, I had a relapse. It was more, and I came out with less, less vision. And this time, having to take a fistful of pills every day and having to follow up with specialists. I was weak, I was tired. It would be a much longer period of adjustment this time. At this point, I abandoned the search for superpowers. It seemed pointless to look for evidence that I could fly when I could barely stand. It would take a long time before we found that new, new normal again. And I lived in constant fear of another relapse. That five-year mark came and went without another relapse, and I was very happy, but I never breathed a sigh of relief because I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop. And then one summer day, we were driving home from the Museum of the Moving Image, and we were in a terrible car accident. We were very, very lucky because the car was totaled, but with the exception of some bumps and bruises and some broken ribs, we literally walked away from the accident, except my hand. My right hand, my dominant hand, got mangled. My hands are how I process the world. And now I wasn't gonna have my hand. I was gonna have to relearn how to do everything without my eyes and without one of my hands. Once again, all those simple tasks, tying my shoes, putting a key in the lock, became insurmountable to me. I felt like without my hands, I was losing touch with the world. I was losing my grip on reality. And it was overwhelming. And again, I felt helpless. I felt lost. And I didn't know how I was going to get through it. I didn't know how I was going to adjust this time to find another new normal. It would be eight months of physical therapy and over a dozen visits to a specialist. And I would not have the use of my hand for the better part of a year. And in the middle of it, one day, I was home alone in my living room, feeling desperate, feeling hopeless. And I walked over to the chair, and out of sheer emotional exhaustion, I didn't even sit in the chair. I slumped to a heap on the floor. And I said out loud to nobody, almost in tears, I keep trying, but things keep happening. I keep trying, but things keep happening. I keep trying, but things keep happening. And I let out a long, low sigh. And just at that minute, the sun shifted a little bit and a thin beam of light broke through the curtain and landed right on my leg. And I felt like I had been struck by lightning. And I thought to myself, if I shift a little bit, I can change my outlook on everything and put everything in a new light. And then I said out loud, almost exuberantly, things keep happening, but I keep trying. Things keep happening, 
but I keep trying. Things keep happening, but I keep trying. And that's when I discovered my superpower, resilience. Everywhere I look From Las Vegas to right here Under your dresser Right by your ear It's creeping in sweetly It's definitely here There's nothing more deadly Than slow-growing fear Life was full and fruitful And you could take a real bite The juice pouring well over your skin's delight But the shadow it grows And takes the depth away Leaving broken down pieces To this priceless ballet The shallower it grows The shallower it grows The fainter we go Into the fade out now The shallower it grows The shallower it grows The fainter we go Into the fade out now This is Risk. This is Phoebe Kildeer and the short straws behind me now. And we just heard from Tracy Starin. That story has been so inspirational to so many people. Before that, a little song that was sent to us by Risk fan Josem. And before that, a story by Oscar Sagastume. Before that, a little interstitial called Voodoo Hoodoo by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. The tables of contents for every Risk episode are at risk-show.com slash listen, and you'll find links to other work by the bands and the storytellers there. And now I want to talk to you about... Whenever I do one of these stamps.com ads, I do wonder how many people in our audience actually still do make the physical trip to the post office. You really don't have to. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. You simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. With Stamps.com, you also get $0.05 off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. We've been using it at risk and the Story Studio for, I don't know, seven or eight years now. And we've always loved it. So don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. I mean, it's especially crowded during the holiday season. Sign up for Stamps.com instead. There's no risk with our promo code, risk (laughs) you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale no long-term commitments or contracts just go to stamps.com click on the microphone at the top of the home page and type in risk that's stamps.com enter risk stamps.com never go to the post office again Now, we've got another big batch of stories for you. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Ernest Anfin. Before that, from Stefan Alexander. And before both of them, a story that Summer Gilmore shared with us when Risk was in Richmond, Virginia this year. Here is Summer now with a story we call Missing. The shower grows, the 
It is the summer of 2005, and I'm living in Iowa with my husband and our three kids. Now in Iowa, the summers can get really hot and humid, and we have a great big house without any central air. So on really hot nights, we would let our kids come and sleep in our room since we were the only room in the whole house that had a window air conditioner unit. And this was one of those nights. So we bring all the kids upstairs, we make a little bed on the floor, we put a movie on, and then we all just go to bed. And around midnight, I wake up to my husband nudging me awake. Summer, Summer, where's the baby? The baby's two. She's on the floor. And I roll over and I go back to sleep. And he's nudging me again more aggressively. Summer, where is the baby? She's on the floor. No, she's not. She's not on the floor. So I get up and I go over to the bed on the floor and I'm kind of moving the blankets around and I'm waking up my other two kids and she's not there. She's not on the floor. And the kids are waking up and we're looking in all of the usual places. I mean, she's two. Did she go back to her bed? Did she get something to drink? Did she go to the bathroom? And she is none of these places. So now we're starting to open bathroom cupboards and we're looking under the beds. And I start to walk down the stairs. And I get downstairs and the first thing that hits me is that my front door is wide open. And my dogs are sitting on my living room floor. And these are not the types of dogs that don't bark when someone comes in and these are not the types of dogs that will just sit on my living room floor so something isn't right and my husband brings the kids downstairs and he gets them a snack and sits them on the couch and he's trying to keep them calm and I go outside and I call her name a few times and if you have kids and you've ever lost them in a park or in a mall you know that moment when you don't see them right away you're trying to fight that away. They're not missing. You're going to find them any second now, any second now. Should I, you know, are they really missing? And that panic just kind of cycles through your head and it's starting to creep in a little bit and I'm still pushing it away. We have these neighbors that I don't think like us and I don't really have any reason to believe they don't like us other than the fact that they won't ever wave at me from the driveway. They've never let my kids come over to play. And they happen to be having a party right now that we weren't invited to. But they're up, and so I go over there, and I'm really nervous because I have to go over to this house of people that I don't think like me and tell them that it is midnight and I can't find my two-year-old. And they're a little concerned, but they haven't seen anything and they haven't heard anything, and I walk back home and I tell my husband they haven't seen her. And I tell them that it's probably time to call 911. It's been about 15 minutes since he first woke me up to tell me that she's missing. And I was doing okay until the dispatcher asked me to describe what she's wearing. She's two, she has blonde hair, and she is wearing Tinkerbell pajamas. 
and I just fell apart. My husband somehow is remaining completely calm through all of this, and he's telling the kids that everything's going to be okay. I live in the type of town where a lot of people have CB radios, so I have people coming to my house now before the police are even there, and they have dogs, and they have flashlights. And I have to describe to you the distinction for me. Up until this point, I didn't know where my daughter was. But these people showing up at my house with their dogs and their flashlights are joining an investigation of a missing child that I didn't realize had begun, and a line has been crossed. People are asking me questions. Do you know anybody? Would she go anywhere? Did you hear anything? Did your dogs bark? And they're going into my house, and they're sitting with my kids, and they're asking my kids questions. And I'm not even sure that everybody is speaking English because everything is just spinning, and it's happening really, really fast, and I don't know what's going on. And now the police are coming, and the police have much more specific questions. And I remember them asking me if we knew anybody that could have taken her. My husband and I look at each other because we did know somebody, somebody that we were close to, and everybody in our family had heard the rumors of what he was supposed to have done. And I can't tell you why we didn't say anything to the police right then, other than we weren't ready to go there because she was okay and we were going to find her and nobody had taken her. We are all in the front yard, and we have an above-ground pool. And of course, I had thought about the above-ground pool because I have a two-year-old and an above-ground pool, and she is missing. And the police are walking to our backyard, and my husband is following, and I'm behind him. And my feet just stop. I can't walk anymore. And I just start shouting his name, Shane! 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 He turns around and he says, what? I said, just don't tell me. And it felt like a thousand years before he got to the pool. And I waited. And he said, she's not in here. And then my legs quit working and I just collapsed. Because as much as I didn't want her to be in there, it meant that she was still missing. And now they're coming and telling me that it's time to put my dogs up because the canine unit is coming and they need to search my house. And this is very real and this is happening right now and all of these people are trying to help me find my two-year-old and she's been missing now for about 45 minutes. The dogs and their handlers come and they're asking me to find the last outfit that she wore and I'm looking in the laundry room and I don't understand and my husband's shouting at me, aren't her clothes in the bathroom and I don't understand what anybody wants from me and I don't know what they're doing and I don't know what I'm supposed to do and my husband finds the clothes and they smell them and they're searching the house and they leave. And I don't know where I'm supposed to go, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, I don't know how to look for her, my feet don't work. And so I go back outside. And it's been over an hour now, and my two-year-old in her Tinkerbell pajamas is missing in the middle of the night. I am starting to ask myself some really tough questions. Why didn't my dogs bark? Was it someone that they knew? Did she call for me? Is she okay? Would I innately know if she was still alive? 
And I don't really know when it happened, but at some point I must have been on the ground and pulled myself into a fetal position. I'm just rocking and I'm calling her name and I'm wailing her name and I am just lost. The daughter of our neighbors, 13-year-old girl, the neighbors who I don't think like me, she has her arm around me and she doesn't know what to say. She doesn't know what to do because she's 13 and I'm pretty hysterical and we're just rocking together in my front yard while I scream my baby's name. About an hour and a half after she's been missing, a car comes up, and I am told that this is the chief of police. And I don't know why he's there. I want to know what he knows, why he's now come to my house an hour and a half after my daughter has gone missing. And I'm trying not to listen too much because he might be saying something that I don't want to hear. And he goes right into my house. And before I know it, my husband is calling for me upstairs. They found her, they found her, and I am up, and I'm running through the house, and I go up the stairs because he called from our room. And standing there is the chief of police holding my daughter wrapped in a blanket. And my first thought is that she wasn't alive. And I pull her from him, and I'm pulling the blanket from her face, and she is hot, and she is sweaty, but she is very much alive. And tears are pouring down my face because I don't know where she was. I don't know who found her. I don't know how she got here. And my husband is just laughing. And the chief of police is just laughing. And I don't understand any of this. And they tell me that two weeks earlier, the chief of police and his wife woke up to find their four-year-old missing he had wrapped himself in a blanket and gotten wedged between the mattress and the footboard of their bed. And so when he heard about my little girl, he came right to the house, and that's the first place that he looked. (laughs) So now, all of my fear has immediately turned to embarrassment. I have half of my town out looking for a child who never left her parents' bed. (laughs) My husband goes outside and he lets everyone know that she's okay. We will have answers tomorrow. And we would like some privacy tonight. So in the morning, I tell my kids that we've got some cookies to bake. And my 11-year-old, why? Why are we making cookies? They didn't do anything. Nobody found her. She never left. (laughs) You know, not one person hesitated, and people that we didn't know and people that we don't think like us came over, and everybody was there, and everybody helped. So we baked cookies, and we went door-to-door on our block. There was no way for me to know all of the people that were there that night, and we walked door-to-door on our street, and... I both thanked and apologized, everyone that came out that night. And the craziest thing was, I honestly believed that they were going to be angry at me. Angry for pulling them out of their homes in the middle of the night, for scaring them, for taking up their time. And you know what? Not one person was mad. I still don't think the neighbors liked us, though.
Music has always felt like breathing to me. It's just something I did. I go into toy stores and make a beeline for the instrument section. Play there for as long as my parents would let me. When I was six, I started taking cello lessons, and for years, I thought I'd be a professional cellist when I grew up. Then when I was 11, I got to perform in the coveted sixth grade talent show. It's this big rite of passage that every kid waits for all through elementary school. They had it in this hardwood gymnasium with a stage at the front. It's where we'd run around for PE every day, but that night it was filled with folding chairs. All our teachers, parents, and family in this packed room. I waited in the wings while my friends went up before me. But I was so scared, my stomach was filled with butterflies when I finally went up on stage. The bright lights made it look like the crowd went on forever. For my act, I had decided to sing a song called The General by the band Dispatch. There was a decorated journal where the heart go like all the stories he told. It was 2003 and the U.S. had just invaded Iraq. The song is this anti-war anthem and so I didn't realize how perfect it would be in the small progressive college town where I grew up. Take a shower, shiny shoes, got no time to lose. Young men, you must feel it in. Go now, you are forgiven. Once I got through the last chorus, everybody leapt from their chairs and gave me a standing ovation. Honestly, I was pretty confused. I didn't know whether they were clapping for me or the pacifist message of the song, but in the end, it, it didn't matter. I saw what music could do to move people, and so I wanted to write my own songs. I started insatiably searching for new music to dig into. I looked to the past. I became obsessed with blues, jazz, old-time folk, and gospel. When I was 17, I started collecting 78 RPM shellac records. They're what people used to listen to music on, before vinyl. And after a while, all these elderly people in my town got wind of my growing collection, and I started getting calls from people who just wanted to give me the boxes they'd been storing in their basements or attics for decades. Each one meant so much to me. The crinkle of those ancient paper sleeves, the mildewy smell of time, the clicks and pops of the needle bouncing through the grooves. But they were so old and fragile, I was scared I might break them. I remember once uh, I was sitting on the floor of my bedroom going through a new box, and I pull out this record that says, Deep River by Marianne Anderson. I'd never heard of her before, so I did some quick research. She was this black opera and gospel singer from the 20s and 30s, and the song was this old spiritual about 
overcoming the trials and tribulations of life and finding salvation. I put the record on the player and immediately I'm bathing in these rolling piano chords. Then Marian Anderson drops in like a soft stone and ripples through me. I didn't know a person could sing so much emotion into one note. I'm staring at the record on the turntable, the record spinning, and before I know it, tears come to my eyes. months later, I'm applying for colleges, and I get into this small selective program at NYU for audio production, music business, and performance. I walked with pride at my high school graduation in my navy blue cap and gown. I'd been in the a cappella group for a couple years, and for our graduation performance, we sang A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke. All the seniors took turns sharing the solo, and I got to go last. I sang my first big line, and this woman in the bleachers yells, Damn, that boy can sing! When I moved to New York at the end of the summer, I knew I was making the right decision. I was doing the thing I was born to do. It's six years later, the spring of 2015, two years after I graduated from college, and now I find myself clinging to the shreds of the life I'd planned, too scared to tell people how terrified I am. Now I'm in Madison Square Park with Francesco, this guy I've been dating for the past couple months. It's this warm, damp night. The street lamps are reflecting off the pavement and the leaves of the trees. We find one of the only dry benches in the park underneath this awning and sit down. He puts his arm around me and says, You've told me everything that's happening to you, but you've never told me how it makes you feel. I grab his hand and squeeze it. Thanks, but... I don't think I'm ready. I'm scared I might cry in front of you. Let's just talk about something else. I couldn't let him in, and I think it's one of the reasons why we stopped seeing each other a month later. Whenever people would ask me what I was going through, I would just laugh it off. Say something like, Isn't it crazy how I haven't been able to play guitar for two years? How my arms hurt so much that I can barely cut vegetables? This tingling, sizzling pain that 
never seems to go away. Isn't it crazy how I haven't been able to sing for almost a year? How I avoid happy birthday at friends' parties? My throat felt like it was on fire. On fire. So my lifelong dream was on this permanent pause. I was in this purgatory of not knowing what was wrong with me or if it ever would get any better. On the rare occasion when I would pick up my guitar and try to sing, after a couple minutes, it felt like this snake was coiling around my arms and my vocal cords, tightening and constricting. That dull ache I'd grown so familiar with would sharpen into what felt like serrated fangs biting into my muscles. Every ounce of venom that would pass into my arms and my throat reminded me of the life I wasn't living. The growing chasm between who I wanted to be and what I was capable of. With this needling feeling and this electric tension that just rolled up and down my arms and through my throat. With this feeling of those teeth biting harder and harder down on my arms, chomping into my throat, the tissue around my voice box. I'd wince my way through a couple more lines, and then I would have to give up. Terrified. Defeated, recoiling from my favorite possessions, swallowing down the lingering sandpaper. My instruments just collected dust around my room. Without music in my life, I had to find other ways to pass the time. I'd go for these long walks in Greenwood Cemetery. It's one of the only places I could really find peace, surrounded by those endless gravestones. One day, I'm walking in Greenwood, the sun is shining, and I'm on the phone with my mom, repeating those same questions I had asked so many times. What if I can never play guitar again? What if I can never sing again? What is my life going to be like? She stops me and says, You know, I think you've worried enough for today. That became my mantra whenever those thoughts would pop back into my head. But I'm still going to three or four doctor's appointments every week. (sighs) Stiff hospital gowns, wax paper on cold steel tables, tools poking and prodding, gagging at the back of my throat. All these doctors are just contradicting one another. I'm met with these looks of confusion or even disdain. Without meaning to, I was testing their egos, their confidence in their expertise. And all they could do to look for any kind of clue was throw electric shocks and sharp needles at me. 
All those vials of blood I filled. The robotic beeping. The ominous hum. And when they'd roll me into an MRI machine, that dark cocoon brought me right back to my childhood. I was born with a condition called hydrocephalus, where the fluid doesn't flow properly through my brain. So I had to have nine surgeries when I was growing up. Whenever I got a bad enough headache and got nauseous, I had to go back to the hospital for a CAT scan to see if I needed another surgery. It probably happened 50 times while I was growing up, and it was always so scary because I never knew whether those days would end curled up on the couch or being rushed into the operating room. Now, as an adult, going to all these appointments, I'm comfortable in these environments. I'm a bit of a medical care connoisseur, but it's still so hard going in for test results. Always hoping to finally be relieved of this endless mystery, but everything always came back normal. It didn't make any sense. I'm in so much pain, but all these top doctors can't see or feel anything wrong with me. I remember leaving another one of those sterile offices, knowing less than what I'd arrived, and thinking to myself, I just wish I had cancer. Trying to make some crazy deal with the devil to exchange one illness for another. I don't care how serious or life-threatening this thing is, I just want to know what I have and how to treat it, or I want someone to tell me it's time to give up. All these doctors can do is just throw medications at me, some new pill, and for a couple days, I'd make myself believe it was working, but then reality would set in. Nothing helped, nothing changed, except for the worse. The day after the 2016 presidential election, I had an appointment with this immunologist I had been working with for a couple years. I was obviously already emotionally raw, scared for my country when she walked into the room, looking somber with a manila envelope in her hands. She sits down across from me and she doesn't even open it. She says, Whatever you have might be beyond the scope of current medical science. I look back at her and I don't know what to say. I'm thinking, you gotta be kidding me. I never even imagined that this quest I was on might not have an end. I took the subway home completely devastated. A couple weeks later, I'm walking home through Ditmas Park one night. The branches of the trees that were so beautiful in the daytime just looked heavy and oppressive in silhouette. It's one of the few times I was actually able to cry during all those years. 
New York and the doctors here had failed me. What the hell am I supposed to do now? I feel my breath get shallow and my heart start to race. I have to call my mom. Thank God she picks up the phone. My questions this time are way more existential. Can I even call myself a musician anymore? What do I have to live for? With this huge lump in my throat, I say, Mom, this is the first time I've ever seriously considered suicide. From 150 miles away, she pours every ounce of empathy she can into the phone and says, You are smart, you are strong, and you're going to get through this. I just know it. I love you. I love you too, Mom. The next few months were really tough. It felt so weird ringing in the new year with so little to hope for. Fireworks were never so quiet, and I drank that night like I drank since this all started, way back in 2013. Trying to calm my anxiety and numb my pain as best I could. Thinking to myself, maybe music wasn't what I was born to do. But if people can't hear my songs, how can they ever really know me? I was scared for the future, scared of some new body part rebelling against me, scared of another mystery. But a couple weeks into January, my mom calls me and she's all excited. (laughs) She says, have you ever heard of the Mayo Clinic? It's this world-renowned research hospital out in the Midwest. If anybody can figure out what's going on, it's gotta be them. So four months later, I'm standing in front of these two tall marble towers in Rochester, Minnesota, clutching a briefcase filled with the 400 pages of medical records I accumulated from the 25 doctors I saw in those four years. I take the elevator up to my first appointment with the head of my medical team. I watch him nervously as he reads through the stack of papers. After about 10 minutes, he looks up and says, Well, you've pretty much ruled everything out already. We'll rerun a couple tests, but I think the best thing for you to do is to go to this seminar on a condition called Central Sensitization Syndrome. A couple days later, I'm in this dark basement room of the hospital, surrounded by all these other sick people, all of them moaning and groaning, but I can't take my eyes off the screen. It feels like this PowerPoint presentation was made about my life. The psychologist leading the seminar says, when you have central sensitization syndrome, your brain can hardwire injuries, so it keeps on sending the same pain signals 
even after the tissue is healed. It's essentially phantom pain, and it's often the result of early childhood trauma. Wow. Wow. No one had ever been able to make the connection between my current illness and what I went through when I was a kid. All those surgeries, it all fit together. Whereas every other possible diagnosis had only covered part of what I was going through, this explained everything. All those negative test results, all those doctors throwing up their hands, shrugging their shoulders, I finally had an answer. The psychologist says, unfortunately, there's no easy fix for this. No magic pill we can prescribe. The only treatment we can recommend is this three-and-a-half-week pain rehabilitation program here at the Mayo Clinic. So, a month later, I'm back in Minnesota for my first day. I walk into the main room and sit down next to another patient, forcing a smile. It's hard for me not to feel apprehensive because I've just tried so many interventions already, but this is all I have left. During the first group therapy session, one of the doctors says, you need to be realistic and manage your expectations because you might not get everything back. My hand shoots up. After all these years, being realistic just feels like giving up. I'm not going to give up on music. I have to perform again. All he can say is, well, I hope someday you can. But after a couple days, they actually get me playing guitar and singing again. I can only do each for a few minutes apiece, but the idea is I have to change my relationship to pain, to work through it instead of against it, using cognitive behavioral therapy and different mindfulness techniques to calm my brain and get in front of my automatic thoughts. So now, when that snake starts to coil and those serrated fangs bite down, I have to tell myself, this pain isn't real. I'm not doing myself any harm. I'm healthy. Everything's okay. And each day, I can play for just a little longer. As grueling as the program is, it feels amazing to be surrounded by all these people who understand so intimately what it's like to live in pain for so many years. What it's like to be a medical mystery. Some of the people there had been living with their symptoms for decades, and it really put mine into perspective. After a while, I even start making some friends. On the last weekend before the end of the program, these two incredible women, Jen and Mona and I, decide to go tubing on a nearby river. It's this beautiful, beautiful summer day. Big blue sky with these wispy clouds, a warm breeze. Even though I'm scared, I'll cut my feet. 
We walk down this winding gravel path to the dock. Mona brings a portable speaker with her into her tube, and as we start gliding down the river, she says, Let's each think of an inspirational song, something that really got us through the toughest times. Immediately, Marian Anderson pops into my head. And we're on this river after all, so (laughs) it felt pretty appropriate. But looking back, I'm no longer that teenager sitting on his bedroom floor. I've had my own trials and tribulations. The song means so much more to me now than it did nine years ago. Mona puts it on and we all go silent. All we can hear are those rolling piano chords, that haunting vibrato, and the quiet babble of the current underneath us. Later that night, when Mona's driving me home, we stop at a red light. She turns to me and says, can I tell you something? I think pretty much every five minutes all day long, you used the words, I'm scared. I stare out the windshield and this shiver runs through me. No one has ever said something so profound about me that I was completely unaware of. No one has ever listened to me with such presence. And this woman has only known me for two weeks. She pulls up to the curb. I open my door and we say goodnight. Back in my motel room, I sit down on the couch with my face in my hands. These memories flash across the insides of my eyelids. I see myself lying awake as a kid, obsessing over house fires, burglars, asteroids hitting the earth, my parents dying. I see myself going around and around the first floor of our house, checking the locks on every door and window four or five times before I felt confident I'd done everything in my power to keep me and my family safe from the outside world. I see myself as a teenager walking up the stairs to my parents' room in the dark late at night, waking up my mom to say, Good night, good night, I love you, I love you. So I could go to sleep knowing those were the last words we'd shared just in case she never woke up. I see myself over these last four years refusing to let people know about the nightmare I'm living and too scared to tell people how I'm actually feeling. Fear has always been in the foreground of my life. And now it's this fear of pain that's keeping me from all these activities I love, this career I've worked my whole life for. On Monday, I tell one of the doctors about my epiphany. He looks at me with these caring eyes and says, that fear is probably a large component of what's kept you in this pain cycle for so long. A switch flips inside me, this 
rush of clarity. I realize if I truly want to get better, I have to learn to be brave. At the end of the week, it's the end of the program, graduation day. That afternoon, everyone is supposed to give a little speech talking about all the gains they've made. Before lunch, one of my physical therapists comes up to me and says, you know you have to sing for everyone, right? My face scrunches up and my lips get all pursed. (laughs) I don't know if I'm ready. (laughs) What if I mess up? What if my voice cracks? But a couple hours later, I'm standing at the front of the room, surrounded by my peers, my new friends. This program really works. I've spent all these years trying to get back to music, trying to get back to myself, and I finally feel like I'm finding my way back. Then I take a deep breath and sing. Deep river, my home is over Jordan. Deep river, Lord, I Cross over in the campground. Two years later, I'm finally releasing new music and performing again. I still have chronic pain, but I'm not afraid of it anymore. And that newfound bravery has permeated every facet of my life, from songwriting to dating to the outward expression of my queer identity. My mom's words still ring true. You've worried enough for today. No, this life isn't easy. Oh, 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 oh. So we're going to go back to a sub-zero day in January of 2003. I was meeting with my divorce attorney in the Thrivent Cafeteria in downtown Minneapolis. We were getting together to talk about the results of her investigation. 
She was investigating the activities of my soon-to-be ex-wife. We sat down, and of course, initially the conversation was light and casual, but shortly thereafter, she put down her fork, she quit eating her salad, and she looked at me with tears welling up in her eyes, and she said, there's just no easy way to tell you this. You're on the brink of bankruptcy, and you may not be the biological father of your children. My family was destroyed by deception and infidelity. And I found out at the thriving cafeteria. My ex, unbeknownst to me, had run up tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt using my forged signature and a secret P.O. box. The interest alone on this debt every month was around $4,000. And that's not, that was the good news. The bad news was that she had had an affair throughout our entire marriage, one that predated our marriage, in fact, predated the conception of our children by several years. And until I was sitting there in that cafeteria, I knew nothing about this man, this stranger, who was so intertwined in my life. All I knew was that he was 20 or 30 years older than me, but as my lawyer said, He might be the father of my children. My children, two of them. August was about four at the time. He was this blonde-haired, big-boned boy that looked like he could crush any of his friends. But if the other boys were roughhousing, August was more likely to be off in a corner painting a picture or singing a song, lost in his own world. His favorite thing to do every night was to grab a book and crawl in my lap. And we would read that book until its last page, and then he would flip them all over and say, again. And we would read that book over and over and over again until he fell asleep in my arms. My daughter, Ava, was about a year old at the time, a year and a half. Even at that age, she was very mischievous, and she continues to be very mischievous. She, uh, if you need a visual reference, think of Boo from Monsters, Inc. At that point in her life, that was the way, shape, and form of Ava. Like Boo, she had a tender side as well. I remember one day the kids were playing in the toy closet. It was this big closet like the size of a room. And I was in the corner just crying. And I was sitting there watching the kids. They were playing with their action figures. They were jabbering back and forth with each other. And I was watching this ballet of sorts. And I couldn't wrap my head around the idea that perhaps these two beautiful creatures, the most beautiful things that I thought I could ever create in my life, were a lie. I knew my marriage was a lie, but what if this was a lie too? What if I had nothing to do with them being on this planet? Ava noticed me crying, and she crawled across the floor and into my lap and buried her head in my chest and wrapped her arms around me, squeezing as tightly as her little body could squeeze me, all the while just gingerly patting me on the back. It was amazing. I mean, this little girl who couldn't even talk yet was trying to take my pain away. 
was trying to squeeze the pain out of me, a pain that could not be taken away. I knew then that, of course, the biology didn't matter. I loved her. I loved August. I had to stay and fight for this love. The only way this love could be lost is if I lost it, if I destroyed it. But the fight wasn't easy. I still to this day don't understand. She wouldn't agree to joint custody, would not agree to it. And to this day, she still, we get along fine, but amazingly. But um, we've been divorced for 18 years, so it takes as much energy to hate as it takes to love. And I have tried to neither hate nor love her. Obviously, the love part isn't the issue, but the hate part, you got to let that go. The uh, divorce process was against me. She was the primary caregiver. Regardless of everything she did, she was the stay-at-home mom. I was the big firm lawyer with a crazy work schedule. And let me tell you something, the court really doesn't give a shit about you and your kids if you're going through a divorce. The court system wants to take the easy path. And the easy path in our situation was to award custody to my ex and hope that I went away. But even when things seemed to be going well, when I felt I was making some progress and the presumption of the primary caregiver was dwindling, she had another club that she would use against me whenever she had the opportunity, and that club was depression. I came from a long line of depressed people, and my personal depression was compounded by the golden boy status I had growing up in a small town in Iowa. I felt like the world's eyes were always upon me. I felt like I had to be the perfect athlete, the perfect student, the perfect person. And even though I'd been in therapy and on medication for years, my ex knew how much I was tormented by failure or the perception of failure would be magnified in my mind a hundred times, a thousand times. And here I was failing at the biggest thing in life, failing as a father, failing as a husband. The system had no problem picking up that club and helping her hit me with it. With that club, I was not only the non-primary caregiver, I was also not fit because I was depressed. And it wasn't just the system and my ex. Everywhere I went, it felt like people criticized me. I would go to Target after work to get groceries, and I'd have my kids with me just like any mom, but people weren't used to seeing a man alone with a kid back then in the early 2000s. And if my kids acted up at all, inevitably some old person would come up to me and say, well, Dad, that wasn't such a good idea now, was it? Coming shopping without the wife? And then they'd laugh and walk away. And those comments happen far more often than you can imagine, unless you're another divorced father. But the shopping critics weren't the worst. The worst was at church. I grew up in a family where I was told that if you're in pain, if you're in need of support, go to church. And I was in pain, and I needed support, so I went to church. But it didn't matter what church we went to. And again, I don't think these people were wanting to harm me. But after the service, some older person would come and say, Hey, Dad, where's the wife? Is she at work today? Or they'd ask my kids, Where's Mom? And again, I don't think they meant anything by these questions, consciously. But in my mind, they cut like a knife to my bone. I mean, to me, they sought assurance that I belonged there. My kids belonged there. We were a Christian family. There was a wife. There was a mom. She just wasn't there that day. But she's around, certainly. 
We're not some misfits that wandered in off the street. And all of the negativity and criticism that I was feeling at that time seemed to be embodied in this old woman who would sit in the lobby of my post-divorce apartment building day after day in the lounge chairs next to the mailboxes. She was a very small woman, fragile, probably about 80. She had this dark-dyed hair and this white skin, eyebrows painted on her forehead, these half-lens reading glasses that were always perched on the tip of her nose and a chain around her neck. And she saw everything that I went through day after day after day. She saw all of my struggles, all my failures, because she was always there. She saw me the day that Ava thought it would be hilarious to poop in the pool, which was right next to the lobby. And I was frantically swimming around in the pool trying to pick up the little poop things because they were either going to disintegrate or they were going to go on the filter system of the pool. And I... I I felt like a bad dad that day, but shit happens, right? (laughs) She was there the day that Ava threw my keys down the elevator shaft, and we had to get maintenance to fish them out. And you know, it's not like these things happen, and you're all happy with, oh, that's so cute. Years from now, I was mad, you know? I was mad. And she saw me mad, and she saw me lose it. And she was just always there. She never said anything. She never did anything. She just stared at us. And she was there the day that I opened my mailbox, and there were two envelopes in that mailbox from the Memorial Blood Center. If you don't know what the Memorial Blood Center is, it's a good thing, because that's where Hennepin County sends you if there's a paternity issue and you need your blood tested. So those two envelopes were going to tell me once and for all whether I was the biological father of my children. You know, it wasn't Jerry Springer, wasn't, uh, there was no drama, no drum roll, nothing like that. I opened the envelopes and it's just two charts with just numbers and numbers. And I'm frantically searching the charts trying to figure out what do they say. And at the bottom I see words, finally, and it says percentile probability of paternity. And next to those words were the numbers, nine, nine point whatever, whatever, whatever percentage. At that moment, a huge weight was lifted from my shoulders. It was news that I had waited months to hear. It meant that I was the father of both of my kids, and I fell into those lounge chairs, and I cried immediately, uncontrollably. And through those tears, I kept searching that form, those charts, to make sure I was seeing what I thought I was seeing. And when I came to my senses, I looked up, and there sitting across the table from me was the old lobby lady, with her eyebrows painted on her forehead and her black eyes staring at me and her brow furrowed. She didn't need to say anything. She was telling me everything I needed to know with her expression. She was saying, young man, I don't know what the hell this emotional outburst is all about, (laughs) but not in my lobby. Not here, not now, not ever. (laughs) She said nothing, offered nothing, asked nothing. I just knew it was time to leave. So I gathered up my charts and my envelopes, and I quietly went back to my apartment. And all of this judgment, criticism, negativity led my depression into a very dark place. Many nights when I went to bed, I felt as if there was a demon lying next to me, and the demon did not speak. The demon hissed. I mean, it it hissed. And And it told me the same things over and over, minute after minute, 
You're no man. You're no husband. Your wife fucking cheated on you with an old guy. You couldn't even compete with an old man. What kind of a man are you? Oh, and your kids, yeah, they love you. Your kids are infants, which means they're idiots. They don't know you. They just love you because they don't have a choice. When they grow up and they figure out what kind of a fucked up, depressed asshole you are, they'll hate you because you will probably fuck them up over the next decade or so as well. The world's right. We'd be better off without you. Your ex, the courts, they're all right. Just fucking go away. And minute after minute, I would lie there and just want to go away, to escape that demon. And at the foot of my bed, there was a patio door, a sliding patio door that led to the ninth floor balcony of my apartment. And beyond that balcony, there was this beautiful meadow of light. It was the lights of Edina just spread out beneath that balcony like little flowers blossoming on this very, very dark hillside. And I knew that all I had to do was walk across my bedroom, slide that door open, and lean over that rail and fall into that bed of light. Fall into that meadow of light and sleep forever. That sleep would quiet these voices. That sleep would make the demon go away. That sleep would leave me in peace, finally. I just wanted the struggle to end. I felt like I was Job from the Bible. I felt God had long, long ago abandoned me. And the most that I could pray for was for God's wrath to pass over me, for the night to end, for the demon to quit hissing, for the meadow of light to disappear, for this struggle to just stop. And minute after minute, it was a fight with that door. And the worst fight of all was that I didn't know what the future held. One day was a particularly bad day. We went to court to receive the custody evaluator's recommendation. And if you've been in a divorce, you also know that nothing can happen as far as custody is concerned until your evaluator gives you a recommendation. Ina had been to court. Well, Ina was the custody evaluator. She had been to court many, many times, and every time she'd go to court, she'd get up and she'd say to the judge, oh, Your Honor, I'm so sorry, I am not ready. I need more time. I have a lot of cases, and this man, this father, is being very difficult. You know, he doesn't understand the whole primary caregiving thing, and he's depressed, and I've got lots of cases. And every day the judge would give her a continuance, every day that we were supposed to get that report. That day she left the court and she saw how frustrated I was and she walked up to me and she said, you've got to come to an agreement with your wife. You're going to lose your kids. And I said, Ina, I'm never going to voluntarily give up my kids. She said, well, if I file my report, you'll lose. And I said, Ina, I am never going to make your job easy. If I'm going to lose my kids, you're going to have to take them away from me. File your fucking report. And I turned around and walked away from her. There was nobody who cheered me at that point. (laughs) Even after the trauma that day, you know, life didn't end. It was a Wednesday, so I had my kids that night, and I had no laundry. Laundry is always there. We all know that. So I took my kids, and I went down to the laundry room of my apartment building, and it was this incredibly bright room. Everything was white, and in the corner they had 
some plastic chairs and a little table and, you know, magazines and some kids' books. And I took the kids over to the corner and I left them there. And guess what? The old lobby lady is sitting there staring at me that day, (laughs) saying nothing, asking nothing, offering nothing. And I just didn't have time or energy to deal with her. I just, I never dealt with her really. I dealt with her by ignoring her. And I just walked past her. I started to sort clothes. I was too preoccupied with the whole Ina situation. And I was sorting my clothes and I was like, my God, what have I done? That was the stupidest thing in the world. I mean, I felt like I'd signed the death warrant on my custody dispute. I thought I was forcing Ina's hand to pull the switch on that electric chair. I mean, what could I do? Could I apologize to her? How would I apologize? Well, should I? No, you did the right thing. You stood up to her. That was the right thing to do. And I was shaking, and I couldn't stop myself from shaking. It was like I had Parkinson's or something. And then all of a sudden, whack, August! And there was a scream from the corner. There was this clatter of plastic and ripped pages and skin being slapped. And I went to the corner, and I picked up Ava, And I grabbed August by the hand, and I dragged him back to the washing machine. And at that point, every molecule in my body was exploding. It was bursting. It felt like it was bursting out of every pore of my skin. And I was doing everything I could to just keep it together. But I was losing the battle. The membrane was breaking, and I was on the verge of tears. And then all of a sudden, I felt this hand on my shoulder. And I was startled, and I turned around, and... It's the old lady from the lobby. I'm like, okay, let's go. You decide today. Today of all the fucking days, you're going to come up to me and tell me I'm a shitty dad. I've been waiting for this, lady. And today you picked the wrong day. I don't care if you're 80. I don't. I'm going to rip your fucking head off. She looked at me with an expressionless face above her little reading glasses. And she said in the sweetest, kindest voice, She said, I don't know who you are, but you need to know you're a wonderful father. All of that energy that was traveling away from the center of my being at the speed of light just immediately reversed course and came imploding into my heart, and I fell into this 80-year-old woman. I fell into her body, and she wrapped her arms around me and squeezed me as tightly as an arthritic 80-year-old woman could squeeze me and gingerly patted me on the back. And I said, who are you? (laughs) She said, I'm Marilyn. (laughs) Ava was still crying into my neck, still upset by the fight with her brother. I don't even think she noticed what was going on. August was standing next to me, his mouth agape. We had all been terrified of this woman for years, (laughs) scared to death of her. And here she was being nice, not just nice, just genuinely wonderful. And I said, Marilyn, I go, I can't tell you how much I needed to hear what you just told me. And she said, my dear, what's wrong? It can't be that bad. I whispered to her, I said, Marilyn, I'm fighting my ex for custody and I'm going to lose. She took me by the shoulders and pushed me back so that she could look at me in the eye. And she said, well, I don't know anything about any of that. But anybody who's ever seen the three of you together can see how much you love each other. You can never lose that. No one can ever take that away from you. 
I'm not sure what happened that day in the laundry room. But if God has ever been present in my life, he was present in that moment. Marilyn was God's voice. Marilyn was God's touch. Marilyn was God's face. Because of Marilyn, I knew God hadn't abandoned me. And after that night, I never again heard the hissing voice of that demon. I never again considered the peace promised by that meadow of light. Ina filed her report. And true to Ina's word, she recommended that my ex get custody. And I lost custody of my kids. I was relegated to being a weekend dad. But I was a dad. And I'm still a dad. August is now 20 years old and goes to college in Chicago. Ava is a senior in high school. And uh, still, when she and I are together at night, we pray to God. And I kiss her on her forehead. And she tells me she loves me. Marilyn saved me not just that night, but she saved me so that I could experience a lifetime filled with dogs and cats. I don't know how many betta fish or hermit crabs, (laughs) a snake. I was able to experience countless trips to the cabin, band concerts and Dairy Queen blizzards. Because of her, I experienced for 18 years the joy, love, and fulfillment of fatherhood. One woman stood up and embraced me, held me close when it felt like the rest of the world was trying to push me away. One woman restored my belief in myself, my belief in myself as a father. One woman renewed my faith in love, my faith in the love of God. And Marilyn, I I know you're probably not with us anymore, but I just want to say thank you. all for this week's episode folks this is fruit bets behind me now and we just heard from ernest anfin story brings tears to my eyes it was first shared when risk was last in saint 
Paul. Before that, we heard a story called You've Worried Enough for Today by Stefan Alexander. You can find Stefan on Instagram at Stefan Alexander. And the way he spells Alexander there is A-L-X-N-D-R. Don't forget, you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour. And if you want any help, any storytelling training to, you know, put together stories for whatever occasion, find us at thestorystudio.org. We have all kinds of different educational opportunities, in-person, long-distance, video conferences, video courses. There's a lot to find at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Just wait, wait, wait for the snow. Just wait, wait, wait.